Pastors Larry and Tiz Huck welcome you to another Larry Huck Ministries podcast. We pray this teaching will fill you with God's wisdom, anointing, and revelation knowledge. Thank you for your prayers and faithful support. Sunday we were uh, in Miami doing a conference with Governor DeSantis and Governor Huckabee and it's an amazing thing. We don't see it amazing because we're so much a part of it but it was full of Jews and Christians meeting together for the kingdom of God and the nation of Israel. It's an amazing thing because that hasn't happened for 2,000 years. But one of Tiz's favorite scriptures is not just Christians and Jews, it's all of us. Where God says, where there is unity, I will command my blessing there. And we need to fight for unity. With every breath. America ought to be more... America is never more racially divided than it is on Sunday morning. As, as somebody said today, one of the worship singers said, this is what America ought to look like. And, you know, when we were talking with Will in the back there, Tiz said, every church that we've ever pioneered, and we've pioneered seven churches, and this is the last. We're never leaving. You're stuck with us until, until the Messiah comes. But when we went to Santa Fe, New Mexico, they said, well, whites and Mexicans don't go to church together. They said they will in our church. And when we went to Australia, they said, well, you can't have aboriginals. Well, we said not only can we have aboriginals, we had 42 different languages spoken in our church in that. And when we went to Portland, they said whites and blacks can't come together. And we said, no, they will in this church. Because on Sunday morning, we ought to be more racially unified than any other time because the kingdom, you know, when we were in Australia, there was a commercial on there and we loved it. And it showed a little girl swinging on a swing and a little white child walked by, a little black child walked by, an Italian child walked by, an island child walked by, a Fijian child. And as she's leaving, just so the mother holding her hands and she said, Mom, what color is Jesus? And the mom said, Jesus, honey, is the light of the world. And pure light is made up of every color in the rainbow. We're working on something right now, and I was talking to Pastor Will about it, in October of doing a big concert outside in the back there called Unite the Light of tearing down the walls that divide. And as God is laying this in our heart, it's not a coincidence that we have Will Ford with us today. I have a whole thing they gave me to read on Will, but I don't wanna, I don't wanna share um, the story because we can't share it like Will can. But Will is an amazing, amazing speaker with an amazing, amazing story that will lead us all into an amazing, amazing future. Would you put your hands together for Will Ford as he comes to minister the word of God to us? Come on, give the Lord a clap, Paul. 
got one in your pocket. All right. Ah, bless the Lord. Come on, y'all can do better than that for Jesus. <laughs> ah, such an honor to be with y'all here today. We love you, Jesus. We give you glory, King of glory. We give you honor. We give you praise. The God of our history, all of our history. You know, you can't talk about black history without talking about the God of all of our history. Now he's woven all of us together. We're going to dive into that today. Go with me in your Bibles. I know I'm all like, y'all like, who is this guy first? I'm like, I know. And I come with, with, with props too, right? So, so I know you, some of y'all wondering what's in, the, what's in the case. So work on that. Go to John 17 while we're doing that. John 17. John 17. One of my favorite passages of Scripture. You know why I love it so much, Pastor Huck? Because we get to overhear Jesus praying for us. And nothing like that. Nothing like it. And now the quilt people are like, oh, the quilt. <laughs> There's a story to the quilt, but that's not, it's not the main thing. Turn this into a case. Now, I know y'all's pastors, like big on excellence, pastors, they, they didn't forget to do something. Right? I just want you to know, I told them I wanted to do this. Because <laughs> he's like, probably going to get the phone out, start texting. So no, 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 no. Yeah, so Ja Pedro, <laughs> don't dock his check. And JP's a spiritual son of mine. I've taught at Christ for the Nations for like about eight years. Yeah, I was over the marketplace leadership major there for eight years. And uh, it's so good. I mean, the Francos, uh, Wonderson, who's here, been such a champion for me. Just uh, our little boys, my little boy and their little girl, family, they, they grew up together. We lived there in Maranatha, there in uh, staff housing together. And, man, we got stories, man. Nobody can make that little, what's that little cheese dough the Brazilians make? My God, nobody can do that. <laughs> and, and Brazilian, like, beef. Yeah. So, so good. But the first time I came across the Hucks, I was, I used to teach in corporate America, do diversity training, communication skills training, management training, things like that. Had my own company doing that. Back in the 90s, and just so happened to stumble into Portland, Oregon, and I'd heard y'all speak on TBN, and just something gripped me. I just, I just had to be there. So we found out where the church was, and oh, my God, you preached one of those powerful messages on generational curses and blessings I'd ever heard in my life. And you talked about your love for Israel at the time. It just, and the thing that messed me up was just all the unity through diversity that I saw in the church. I was like, where is, is there another place like this on the planet, you know? I met you briefly. I was just a you know, little business guy, but little did you know what you put in my heart. Amen. Back then. Amen. So I honor you, sir. Can we just honor the Hucks right now? Come on, stand in your feet. Y'all have no idea. Your influence on my heart, the labor of love, and uh, somebody who's doing this stuff for real. You know, we bless you today, so we honor you in Jesus. Thank you so much for you and your family. Amen. 
Amen. Amen. Yeah. So I'm kind of geeking out a little bit because about 30 years in the coming, you know. And so uh, I like John 17, y'all, because uh, overheard my mother praying for me once. Have you ever, you ever heard, overheard anybody praying for you? I remember I went to Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, I came home for the summer, my sophomore year. Backslidden knucklehead. Right? And so I'm home for the summer, and I thought I was going to, you know, do what I did when I was in Atlanta on the weekend. So there was some of my you know, college buddies were in town. So we went clubbing here in the Fort Worth area. I grew up here, went to O.D. White High School in Fort Worth, Texas, right? Played high school basketball. Don't let the, the little boots flee. I <laughs> put on some sneakers and I'll cross you over. <laughs> I'm not that good. <laughs> but anyway, um, man, I come home. My mama's house about three in the morning. I realized I ain't going to a dormitory. I'm going to mama's house. And I'm drunk. So I thought, I got, I got to figure this thing out. So I kind of eased the front door open. I creep into my mama's house. But who's up at three in the morning praying for me? My mama. She going to town. Devil, I bind you in the name of Jesus. Jezebel, you better back up. Dalala, I see you. I plead the blood, the blood, the blood. <laughs> Old saints knew something about the blood. I was like, I, I never heard, my, she's a quiet little lady. I never heard her talk like that before. I never heard her pray like that before. I was like, no wonder I couldn't get any phone numbers tonight. <laughs> Mama's blocking everything. I'm pretty sure one of those girls' name was literally Jezebel. I, I listened to my mama pray for me, y'all, for about, about an hour. You talking about a buzzkill? That was a buzzkill. <laughs> Sobered me right up. <laughs> Man, about a year later, I for real, for real, gave my life to the Lord. Yeah. I told mama, I said, mom, you didn't know it, but <laughs> overheard you praying for me. And it branded me, changed my life. I see, you know, I was on the side of that door that night, but thank you for praying for me. She said, oh, I knew you were there. <laughs> I knew you were there the whole time. <laughs> I wanted you to know what God had placed on my heart concerning his purpose, his plan, and his destiny for your life and how I was contending for it. <laughs> I heard one preacher say the only difference between a praying mama and a pit bull is lipstick because a praying mama, she don't let go of this one. <laughs> John 17 should sober us up, y'all. We get to overhear Jesus praying for us. John 17, 17, he says, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. As thou sent me into the world, even so I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Then he says this, Neither pray I for these alone, but, talking about the 12 disciples, but for them also who believe in me through their word. Turn to your neighbor and say, Now he's praying for you. Amen. What is he praying? That they may all be one. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou hast given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be perfected 
One of your translations says, may be perfected in unity. But I learned that Sunday that your pastor said, the word unity ain't there. It's the word one again. Over and over and over again. That they will be one. So that the world may know that thou hast sent me and loved them even as thou hast loved me. In other words, it's going to be such a supernatural love and unity in the church. It's going to be so provocative. Lost folks are going to say, where, where can I go to be a part of a family like that? Maybe this is the place where I can get that rejection thing broken off my life. What must I do to be saved? So, yeah, God wasn't surprised by all the stuff that's happened, you know. He wasn't surprised by the pandemic. And he knew the social distancing was going to reveal the social distance in our hearts. But he reveals in order to heal. And God's going to use the United Church to heal a divided nation. And that's what he's raising y'all up for in this time. And so I want to share with you a story, honestly, that I'm still blown away by. I'm so humbled to be a part of this crazy tapestry that God is bringing about in my life. But all of us are being woven into something. And it's connected to the unfinished business in your family. The area that you live in, your community, your state, the whole nation. Can I pray for you? So, Father, we, we love you. And we overheard your son praying for us. And he's been so good to answer our prayers. Would you give us the grace to respond to his voice and answer his prayer? That we will be one. God, we ask you. Come, release the spirit of wisdom and revelation in our midst. Can release the convicting power of the Holy Spirit also in our midst. And Holy Spirit, come and do what you do best and what you love most to do. Make us love Jesus Christ more than we did before we first came in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, some of y'all probably wonder what this hunk of tin is doing up here. <laughs> this thing is about 200 years old. Colonial, Colonial Williamsburg told me this about from 1834 to 1838. It's passed down from the slaves of my family. And I think it's connected to this little speech that Dr. King gave. If you would, go ahead and play that little clip from the I Have a Dream speech. Check this out. in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. I have a dream that one day on the Red Hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood? I have a dream. Powerful, powerful speech, right? Did y'all know that little phrase, I have a dream? Did y'all know that phrase came from a prayer meeting? That little phrase, I have a dream. So, story is told, there was a little girl named Prathia Hall. She was 22 years old at the, at the time. She went on to become a, an amazing, powerful, like, pastor, leader, and all right. Went to Princeton Theological University. But uh, Prathia... Uh, was she had a she had a, a father was a black Baptist, Baptist preacher who was amazing preacher in himself, so he named her after prayer, Prathia. So Prathia and Dr. King and several others who are part of the SCLC they're in a church that had been burned down by the Ku Klux Klan, and in the middle of that rubble, Prathia starts to pray, and she starts saying, "I have a dream," and she starts naming off her list. 
I'm taking Dr. King to the airport. He said, young lady, you know, that, that phrase you used, that was pretty powerful. You mind if I borrow that? She said, yes, sir, my, by all means. And for over a year, he incorporated the phrase, I have a dream into his prayer life for over a year. So he's working on his speech before he was going to do, you know, the March on Washington. It was first called something like uh, uh, America's uh, Council Check with Black America. That, that was like the original name for the I Have a Dream speech. And so he's in Detroit a month before that, and he's reading the speech verbatim. He always worked with speech writers. He's reading the speech verbatim, and he gets to the end, and he started saying what he'd been praying for over a year. I have a dream, and he names off his own list. His friend Mahalia Jackson, how I many of y'all remember, know, know the name Mahalia Jackson? Oh, they were close friends. She was there. She was like, oh, my God, that's so powerful. But his speech writers, not so much. They thought, ah, Doc, you know that I have a dream stuff is too cliche. Let's stick with our talking points and just focus on this speech. So reluctantly, he agreed. So if you get the right version of the I have a dream speech, Dr. King's reading the speech verbatim, and you see him doing that. But then when he gets to the end, you can hear somebody in the background say, Martin. Tell him about the dream. That was Mahalia Jackson. And then it kicks into, I have a dream. Then all the rest is history. All because he overheard somebody else in a prayer meeting. Question. What kind of impact is your prayer life having on those around you? Now, I'm not, I'm not saying you need to be praying with one eye open. See who's walk in. <laughs> no, what I'm saying is there should be something on us that is impacting the next generation around us. But even more importantly, think about it. Dr. King took the cry of the next generation and cast it as a vision for us all. He took praise to his prayer and cast it as a vision for us all. So I love that speech because I'm one of those sons of former slaves. And this kettle pot came from the slaves in my family, my father's side of the family. They were slaves down in Lake Providence, Louisiana, where my father grew up in Lake Providence, Louisiana. And uh, I don't think it's a mistake. One that was passed down to me. I also don't even think it's a mistake that it comes from Lake Providence. You know what Providence is? Providence, according to Nelson's Illustrated Bible Dictionary, says that Providence is the continuous activity of God by which he preserves and governs. It's the way God looks over seemingly insignificant things and apparent accidents. In other words, you have no idea how many things God Cause to happen for you to get here on time or prevent it from happening. You have no idea, uh, you know, like that check that came in the mail accidentally at the right time or that doctor's work. Listen, God watched over it all. And the word for uh, providence that I love, the understanding of providence I love the best is in uh, Ephesians 2 and 10 where it says that we're God's workmanship in Christ Jesus and we're walking out the works that he prepared beforehand for us to walk in. The word workmanship, y'all, says powerful word poema in the Greek. That's the Greek word. Everybody say poema. So here's the word poem in there, right? So think about it. You're God's poem. You're his song. But even greater than that, the word poema was the word that was used to describe someone who was a skillful tailor. A fabric maker, a fabric weaver. In other words, God has a tailor-made plan, tailor-made destiny for all of our lives, connected to the families we're born into, the regions we're part of, all that, right? My sister, she used to do crocheting and needlepoint, and, and uh, she'd be crocheting something sometimes, and I'll always see just a bunch of knots and tatters on one side, and I'm like, why would somebody work on something that ugly for that long? You know, that's what I would think. <laughs> 
And she said, no, no, let me turn it around so you can see what I'm working on. That's what I want to do with you in this little story. I believe God is turning the tapestry around just so, a little bit so we can see what he's been working on for quite some time. Not just in my life, but in all of our lives right now. And so, honestly, I didn't, I didn't thought much about this pot. It was uh, 2000. Year 2000, um, summer 2000, I got hungry for revival. I mean, for real, for real, as the young folks would say. And so what happened is I was living right around the corner. I wasn't even going to go here, but I need to go here. I, I, was, I, I lived in H-E-B. I lived in Euless, right off of Hospital Parkway, a little street called Chesapeake Street. And uh, I was reading a book on revival by a guy named uh, Bill Bright. And at the end of the book, he says, God, give me two million people who'll do a 40-day fast for revival in America. And I said, God, make me an answer to that man's prayer. And so God gave me the grace to do an extended fast, first time in my life. And uh, the first day of the fast, somebody spray-painted my neighbor's car on my neighborhood. I said, God, what do you want me to do? He said, start prayer walking your neighborhood. So I was prayer walking my neighborhood, and I would meet people who were who were lost, people in other religions, share the gospel, people get saved, folks were sick. I see people, saw sick people healed. But I also started studying about the first great awakening, the second great awakening. I started studying about the Azusa Street revival, the latter rain movement, and all these revival movements. And I got to the place where all I could do was just walk and weep and pray for revival as I walked throughout that neighborhood. I would go early in the morning and late at night because I had this one nosy neighbor. Kind of remember Gladys Kravitz from that show, Bewitch, whatever. Just, <laughs> Looking at the window and on our phone at the same time, it's like, there he go again. He walking and crying again. I don't know what his wife is doing to him. Lady, I'm praying for you. That's what I'm doing, you know. <laughs> so then I heard about this prayer meeting in Washington, D.C. called The Call. It just happened to be the last day of my 40-day fast. I broke my fast there. I didn't know a soul there. But then months later, some of those same people were doing a conference in Colorado Springs. So this little lady named Cindy Jacobs, who I didn't know at the time, she was speaking. And it was Dutch Sheets Conference. I didn't know him. So she called up Dutch Sheets, and she calls up another man, young man named Billy Olson. And she starts praying and prophesying over them that they would go to Williamsburg, Virginia, and do prayer and revival meetings. And then she stops, and she says, hold up, there's something to this, because Dutch, his real name is William. Of course, Billy, his real name is William. And, you know, here we are praying about them going to Williamsburg, one of the founding parts of our nation. Does anybody know what William means? And I just kind of blurted out and said, it means noble spirit, resolute protector. She said, that's right. Who said that? And I was like, oh. <laughs> I just wanted to be a fly on the wall, right? <laughs> she said, get down here. She said, you're a William too, aren't you? She's a little prophet lady. You're a William too, aren't you? Then she said, no, please come down. It's too white up here anyway. Come on down. <laughs> <laughs> but when the three of us get connected to that, together, William Dutchies, William Billy Olsen, me, William III, the spirit of God falls on all three of us. Start weeping over each other, though we never met each other before. Dutch says, if we do this, I don't know why, but you have to come with us. So I thought it'd be like church camp or something, you know, you exchange phone numbers and never hear from each other again, right? But little did I know, Mr. Poema was weaving something together. Dutch shared this powerful message. I'll share a snippet of that in just a moment. And uh, about unity and synergy and joining the generations in prayer. I shared with him the story of the kettle and it turned to us doing this prayer journey around the country right before 9-11. We went through all of, of uh, New England and the Northeast to pray for a revival. And so Dutch said that uh, 
He wanted to augment the trip and add more dates, to not, not just more dates, but more cities to it than just Williamsburg. So he sends me all the names of the cities that he wanted to go to. And this is where the story first starts getting weird. He sends me all the names of the cities that he wanted to go to. And all of them, except for two, were names of streets in my neighborhood in Euless that I've been prayer walking. For example, we went to Jamestown. The original settlement, Jamestown Court, was across the street from me. Went to Princeton University. Princeton Street was two streets behind me. Went to Hanover, New Hampshire. Hanover Street was next to Princeton Street. Went to Dartmouth University. Dartmouth Court was four streets down on the left. Went to uh, New Haven, Connecticut. New Haven Court was one street down on the left. Went to Gettysburg. Gettysburg Street was around the corner from me. Literally, I could go on. We were going to the whole Chesapeake Bay Area, and they used to call the whole area the Chesapeake, and at that time, I lived on Chesapeake Street. Now, why would God do that with a white man named Dutch and a black man named William III? It's because it was the Dutch. They were the first ones to send slave ships into America in 1619. William III, that king from England, was the first king from England to send slave ships into America. I was saying, I want to use your relationship to show that I want to reverse the effects of yesterday's pain. Let me turn the tapestry around a little bit for you. Acts 17, 25 to 27, where it says, God has made from one blood many nations and determined the bounds of our habitation, time before point, that we may seek after God and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. And what connected us together was this teaching that Dutch had on synergy. What is synergy? Synergy is when you take two separate things and when you connect them together, it doesn't create an addition of power, but a multiplicity of power, right? Scientists say if you take two horses and put them together, if they're pulling the same load, it creates so much exponential power, it's as if a third invisible horse has been added. Now, spiritually, we know that one could put a thousand to flight and two could put what? Ten thousand. So think about it. We start getting all this agreement and prayer between red, yellow, black, white, and brown. We start getting all this agreement and prayer between old, young, male, female. We can see the synergistic exponential release in the power of prayer like we've never seen before. That's why I love what I saw in Portland back then. I love what I see right now. Listen, y'all, don't take the unity through diversity that you have here for granted. I don't see it everywhere. Fight to maintain the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. Amen? Because you become a landing strip for God's blessing. Psalm 133 says, well, how good and pleasant it is for a brethren to dwell together. And what unity is like the anointing oil flowing from Aaron's head onto his beard and onto his robe. But the Bible says, for there, everybody say there. Yeah. The Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Yeah. So God's looking for a place called there. Yeah. Looks like a lot like a place called here. But then Dutch said something so profound, and this would change my life. He said this, not only can you agree in prayer with the person sitting next to you, you can also agree in prayer with the generation behind you. He was talking about how he was at his alma mater, Christ for the Nations Institute, leading the student body there in prayer, praying for a revival for the school. And the Lord said to him, Dutch, I want you to come in agreement with the prayers of the founder of this school from Gordon Lindsay. And he thought, okay, God, is that really you? Because Gordon Lindsay's dead. He's been dead for like 30, 40 years. I know you're not into talking to the dead. <laughs> and the Lord said, I didn't say agree with him. I said agree with his prayers. His prayers are still alive before my throne. There are things I promised this man in prayer that I want to release into this school right now, but I can't do it yet because I need this generation to come agree with that generation. I want to bring about the synergy of the ages coming together. So finally, Hebrews 11, 39 and 40 made sense for me where it says, all these by faith, talking about the great heroes of faith, they were approved for their faith, but they did not receive what was promised. So that apart from us, they wouldn't be made perfect without us. In other words, y'all, there's a whole company of people looking over the balcony of heaven saying, hey, y'all, don't mess this thing up. 
God started something in me that he wants to complete exponentially through you. Jesus said it best when he said, what greater works than these are you going to do because I'm going to the Father. And he'll start something in one generation and complete it exponentially through future generations. All right? Which helped me understand Psalm 133 a whole lot better. Because Psalm 133 primarily is about prayer. Why? Because Aaron's a high priest. And so what will happen is every year, the robe of the high priest was passed down from one high priest to the next high priest to the next high priest. But as the new high priest was being anointed, when that oil dripped down, it mingled with the anointing from the past on the same robe. And it was passed on again. She said, we don't get it. I'm explaining it. Y'all don't get it because y'all thinking like when we anoint people, like we anoint people today, we put a little oil on our finger, we thump people on the forehead and call it a day. No, that's not how they did it back then. They would take up the, according to Jack Hayford and other scholars, they say they would take up the, a gallon of that thick, rich anointing oil and pour it all over that high priest's head. And the oil would drip down from his head and onto his beard and onto his robe. Listen, that one robe was then passed down to the next high priest. But as he was anointed for his today, as the oil dripped down and mingled with the anointing from the past on the same robe, then that same robe was passed down to the next high priest. In other words, y'all, that's supposed to be a momentum-building anointing in the place of prayer that goes from generation to generation to generation, the saturation of the ages, if you will. Everybody's looking for the next woman that I'll lose something or the next purpose-driven this or that. <laughs> and hey, listen, those are great titles by great authors. That's not my point. My point is this. God's not after originality right now. You know what he's after? A successor. And to a successor, he released a double portion of Northern Ireland that's so powerful and not only make them impactful in this generation, but make them a springboard for future generations to come. In the place of prayer. That shared that I was a wreck because I remember this kettle pot in my family. Like I said, they used about the slaves in my family. They used it for cooking. They used it for washing clothes, but secretly they used it for prayer. They were owned by a slave master there in Lake Providence who would beat them for any reason. Praying was one of them. See, back then they wanted slaves to be Christians because they knew that Christian slaves made better workers. But they would pervert the gospel and say, slaves be obedient to your masters if you want to go to heaven. Now, we know we're saved by grace through faith, not of works. It's a gift of God so that no one should boast. But it was easy to teach slaves that back then because it was against the law for slaves to read and write. It was also against the law for anybody to teach them how to read and write. And the irony with the peculiar institution that slavery was is that while they wanted their slaves to be Christians, they didn't want them to pray because they felt like if they prayed, it would foster hope. And if they got hopeful, they felt like they'd try to run away. Show y'all cruel slavery was on this plantation when a story passed down about a great uncle of ours named Uncle Willie who went fishing without asking on the plantation and so the slave master decided to make an example out of him. So they strapped him to a tree and put both arms and legs around either side of that tree. Then they took a leather whip which was shredded which had rocks and nails and glass attached to it, something like the cat of nine tails. And they beat this slave forefather of ours until all the flesh was pulled out of his back. The family in there for to save his life took lard or grease and put it on a sheet and they used the sheet like a bandage and wrapped it around his body to stop the flow of the blood. They put grease on the sheet so that the cotton from the sheet wouldn't stick to the exposed skin on his back. But in spite of their efforts and because of the cruelty, he bled to death and died. So that's how cruel slavery was there in that plantation 
in Lake Providence and all throughout Louisiana. I mean, it was one of the cruelest places to be in slavery. But here's the thing. The folks who passed down this pot in my family, they loved Jesus. They were Christians, and they decided to pray anyway. So what they would do is they would go into a barn late at night to make sure their prayer meeting wasn't seen. But to make sure it wasn't heard, they used this cast iron pot. So they would go into the middle of the cabin floor and take this pot and turn it upside down on the cabin floor. They would then take three or four rocks to prop up the edges so it would be suspended off the ground about an inch or two. They prostrate themselves in the ground to put their lips in between the opening between the ground and the kettle so that this kettle pot muffled their voices as they prayed through the night. And the story that they passed down with this pot is this, is that they didn't think they would see freedom in their time. So they prayed for the freedom of their children and the next generation. One day, freedom came. There was this young teenage girl. We don't know what her name is to this day. She was a teenager when slavery ended, and she decided to keep this pot and that story in our family. Why would she do that? She overheard somebody else praying for her. And she knew she wasn't the only recipient of their sacrifice. She probably was thinking about all those who are too old to enjoy the freedom she's about to embrace. She's probably thinking about all those who are dead and gone. And she passed this pot and this story down to Harriet Lockett. Harriet Lockett passed it on to Noah Lockett. Noah Lockett passed it on to William Ford Sr., who gave it to William Ford Jr., who then gave it to me, William Ford III. So I'm there at this conference, thinking about the heart that God had given me for the next generation. The heart he had given me for revival. Then I started thinking about this part, and I thought, oh, my God, to whom much is given? Yeah. Y'all, here's the deal. That generation of people, not just the black Christian enslaved, but also those white abolitionists and revivalists, they prayed in some of the most powerful revivals that shaped the course of the history of our nation and set a whole nation free. But we won't see what they saw unless we do what they did. Amen. We feast and play. They fasted and prayed. Something's got to change. I'm not trying to guilt you into the prayer room, but I'm telling you, we got unfinished business. But beyond the obligation, I also thought about the privilege. I thought, oh, my God, I get to agree with the prayers of my forefathers. In my family and in my Christian history in this nation, even those forefathers, I had to agree with the prayers of my Christian forefathers for the freedom of this next generation. And I thought about the exponential results that could be released and created from that. Shared it with Pastor Dutch. He was praying about us doing that, that, that prayer journey around America. He said, God, you really want me to have some cast iron cooking pot represent the prayer bowls. And listen, y'all, there's a prayer bowl. In heaven, Revelation 5 and 8 says it's a golden bowl. You know why it's a golden bowl? Because that's how precious your prayers are to God. It's how precious your prayers are to God. And then Revelation 8 through 5 says that some point in time, he adds more incense to our incense. Remember, incense is prayer. He has more incense to our incense. In other words, he has a way of perfecting our prayers. Out of the mouths of babes and suckling come perfected. Praise, it could be also translated as prayer. What does that look like? You know, when Benjamin, my little son here, he's 10 years old now, but if he was two, walk up to you and say, hey, can you give me some wah-wah? You might not understand what he's talking about. But because I'm his daddy, 
I said, oh, let me perfect his request. Let me give him some water. There's some times in prayer, you can't articulate it right. All you can do is just get a tear to come down your face. All you can do is just get a moan and a groan out. And Father God says, I'll take that. Add this to that. Revelation 8 says also, you know, incense smells really good, but you know what it makes it smell a whole lot better? When it's on fire. You know, I think the hot coal represents, it represents the hot heart of a fervent, effectual prayer warrior. And all of a sudden, that gets put in that mixture with all those prayers, and all of a sudden, phew, all of heaven becomes fragrant with your prayer life. And at some point in time, Father God says, now's the time. He releases thunder and fire and lightning and earthquakes down as a result of your prayers. So this was like, you want me to have some cash time? I can probably represent the prayer bowls in heaven. About that time, he said, his Bible fell open to Zechariah 14 and 20. Part B of that verse says, and the cooking pots in the house of the Lord shall be like the bowls before the altar. So here's this cooking pot that's caught muffled prayers. Same as a bowl in heaven that catches up prayers like this. Then Dutch said this to me. He said, wouldn't it be just like God in his justice and irony to use the prayers of a slave generation to free a nation up for revival again? I'm glad he said generation because it wasn't just black Christian slaves praying. Like I said, it was also white Christian abolitionists and revivalists. I knew that if any person was a slave was a Christian, then that person was their brother, their sister. They knew they were, they were fighting for family. They knew they were connected because of the blood of Jesus. They laid their lives down for each other. Many of them also had their houses burned. They were shot, killed, and lynched because they chose to suffer with the people of God rather than compromise and weaken slavery. One of them was a man named Elijah P. Lovejoy in a town, Alton, Illinois, where it was, uh, a slave was beat to death and nobody else cared about it. Elijah P. Lovejoy decided, you know what? I'm taking a stand and this has to stop. And that white preacher became an abolitionist, bought a brand new thing called a printing press and started writing down his musings about why slavery needed to end. And it began to change the mind of everybody, lots of people in Illinois, except for this one angry mob who would come to his house often, come to his house often to threaten his life. They tore up his printing press. He ordered a new one. They went to the post office and tore it up before it could be delivered to his house. So Elijah P. Lovejoy went before his city council and he said, listen, mayor and council, it's the duty of the government to protect its citizens. Why aren't you protecting me? And the mayor said, sir, if you just stop preaching what you're preaching and printing what you're printing, that would be your protection. Elijah P. Lovejoy stood before him and begins to weep. He said, forgive my tears. I shed them not for myself, but for you and others. He said, if I was to stop doing what I'm doing, I would fear that the angel of the Lord with his flaming soul would pursue me wherever I'm going. I don't fear man, I fear God. And if I fall, make my grave here in Alton, Illinois. End of quote. His words proved prophetic. The next day, an angry mob came to his house, burned it down, and as he ran out to escape the flames, he was shot and killed. You think God has forgotten about people like that? But it's people like that that help me realize that this is just not part of my legacy because he's supposed to be a Christian. See, if my ancestors had been Muslims or Buddhists, I'd have no connection to this part of this history spiritually. Why? Because I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. But because they were Christians, listen, none of these, my ancestors and forefathers, if you're a Christian here, no, no matter what race you are, this is your heritage too. In other words, I'm just as much a spiritual son of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and John Wesley, 
and Charles Finney and Harriet Beecher Stowe as you are Martin Luther King and William Seymour and Harriet Tubman and when we come together in that kind of unity and agreement something powerful happens oil begins to flow anointings begin to mingle yokes get broken over a generation so there was a supreme court law back then called Dred Scott which said the slaves had no rights in the courtroom I thought they would settle law. They thought they would just fix it forever. Nothing settled until God said it settled. God sent a revival that was so powerful, it broke the hearts of people so radically for the ending of the slavery that some folks were willing to fight for other folks that didn't look like them. That's why I'm saying, listen, the same God that broke the power of Dred Scott, y'all, he just broke the power of Roe v. Wade. And he's going to put an end to systemic poverty. He's going to stop our schools from being a pipeline to prison. He's going to shut down mass incarceration. He's going to put an end to the opiate crisis in the suburbs. And he's going to shut down crack houses in the inner city. He's just looking for a new generation of people who will drop their agendas and come together and believe again. God's dealing with this whole thing about addressing human dignity with all this. I remember we first... We're doing this, and I remember, I, I don't know what happened, Pastor. I was on that prayer journey with Dutch, and spirit of travail hit me in the most intense way I'd ever experienced. I thought I was having a nervous breakdown. I cried out and wailed and wept over America for almost three hours. I asked Dutch, I said, what's going on? He said, God's just breaking your heart for America. Drink lots of water. <laughs> The Lord said this to me. He said, William, you walked me through your neighborhood. Now I'm walking you through my neighborhood. <laughs> and I'm sharing with you my heart. So I walked in this neighborhood. Y'all don't, don't get it. You start your prayer walk today. You have no idea what God is preparing you for 20 years later. Don't stop walking. Don't stop praying. Don't put a, don't put a period where God maybe put a comma in your life. Don't you put a period. Stop finished. Mr. Poem is still writing your story. Jesus, so that's why I'm so rocked today. So uh, the Lord said to me, you walk me through your neighborhood, I'm walking you through mine. And I'm sharing with you my heart about how my heart was broken with all the division and the atrocities between the settlers and the First Nations people. Start talking about what happened with not just slavery, but what happened to uh, Chinese here and other things in our nation. And the Lord said this to me, he said, William... If the silent whispers of prayers, if I heard the silent whispers of prayers under these kettle pots, how much more so do I hear the silent screams of babies being aborted in your nation? And then I began to see the connection between racism, eugenics, population control, and the agenda. I don't have time to go into the whole thing. But the Lord showed me something. He said, when the people that you cannot see, talking about the child in the womb, when the people that you cannot see can become optional, it's inevitable that other people that we can see can also be dehumanized and marginalized, even to the place of elimination, just like we saw with DeMarc Hillman and George Floyd. God weeps over all the shedding of innocent blood. The same God who wept over those men and wept over the nine police officers that were killed during the riots, same God who wept over 63 million babies in this nation. Yes. So Lord is saying this, listen, some people say, 
you know, Black Lives Matter, I get it. I can get with the emphasis. I can't get with the entity. They buy too many houses. <laughs> I'm praying for them, though. Some people say, all lives matter. I really, I know what they're trying to convey. God is saying, drill down deeper. Life matters. God's restoring human dignity from the womb to the tomb, from the cradle to the grave. He's going to help us see everything that he sees. But the Lord said to me, if you want to be a part of this, you got to deal with your own baggage. So he addressed my baggage through a dream. He gave me a dream about the dreamer, Dr. King. In the dream, I'm on my way to Dr. King's old church and, uh, in Montgomery, Alabama, Dexter Avenue. And in the dream, I'm with my friend Lou Engel, but we couldn't get to the old church without first picking up Dr. King. So it's a dream, so Dr. King is alive, so we go by his house to pick him up. And in the dream, he comes out of this huge white duffel bag with black handles on it. And in the dream, he starts emptying all this dark garbage out of that duffel bag. Then he throws the bag down violently, and he comes to get into this vehicle with us. And in the dream, I thought to myself, man, that bag will make a nice souvenir. It shows I'm, I'm petty. I'm sorry, y'all. I'm, I'm kind of petty. I'm carnal. Even in my dreams, I am. I, I'm thinking, I went to Morehouse College. He went to Morehouse College. The bag will make a nice souvenir. That's what I thought. So in the dream, I get out of the car to go pick up the baggage. But before I could touch it, in the dream, Dr. King grabs me by my shoulders, and he says, no, do not go back and pick that up. And he starts telling me what I need to do to heal the racial divide in our nation. I began weeping in the dream, and I woke up with tears streaming down my face. I had been weeping in intercession the whole night. My pillow was soaked in tears. I shared the dream with my friend Lou Engle. He begins to weep. We start praying. God, what is the interpretation for this dream? God, remind me. What did Dr. King say to me? The Lord said to me, William, the white bag with the black handles, that would be the interpretation for your dream. And I realized that the black handles represented my ethnicity as an African-American man. And the white baggage represented my unforgiveness issues that I had. So I knew what God was putting his finger on. He's, he's saying, get rid of your white baggage. You've been carrying it for way too long. So I know what it's like at 13 years old to be with three other friends, about the same age. We're coming out of a convenience store, and a carload full of white guys put up to us. Saw shouting the N-word at us, said they were going to shoot and kill us. They chased us for almost two hours. They probably were just drill riding, but listen, we didn't know them. We were terrified. I know what it's like at, at uh, 19 years old to be falsely accused of shoplifting by a police officer. And when he couldn't find anything on me or on us, he said ugly things to try to provoke us into a fight so he had an excuse to take us in. I know what it's like in my 30s to get my first nice house in this area. And the same police officer would pull me over every week for the first three months just for driving while black. I know what that feels like. But you know what I'd done for every police officer and every white person in that region? I put those stories on everybody. I prejudged people before I had one conversation with them. I saw everybody through the veil of those three experiences. I've had other great encounters with police officers. Some of my best friends and people I run with and done life with, but in that area of, 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 this, of the Metroplex, that's why I had that stronghold. It's the, that's the devil's diabolical plot, isn't it? It's Revelation 12 where it says the devil is the what? The accuser of the brethren. The other word accuser comes from this powerful Greek word. It's the Greek word kategoros. It's where we get the word category. 
So the diabolical plot of the enemy is to get us to categorize or stereotype each other. So before we have one conversation with each other, we'll put some bad stigma, some bad storyline in each other. God was saying to me, William, get rid of your bitterness. Get rid of your unforgiveness. Get rid of your resentment. Get rid of your white baggage so we can all get into a new vehicle that can bring revival and justice for everybody. And so the question I believe God has for everybody in the church right now is this. What color is your baggage? Is it red, yellow, black, white, brown? Or is it a donkey or an elephant? <laughs> Listen, y'all, from all the extreme stuff we saw with 410 cities being set on fire by the extreme left, and all the extreme stuff we saw from the extreme right on January 6th, listen, y'all, left wing, right wing, the whole bird is sick. We need the dove back in America. It's not about the donkey, the elephant right now. It's about the lamb. It's important who you vote for, but it's more important how we represent the one we live for. Because only a united church is going to heal a divided nation. So my friend Lou Engel... We actually went to Dr. King's church right after I had that dream, had a powerful time. I actually had the chance to go up to Dr. King's old pulpit, and, and I had this big, thick book called The Testament of Hope, 600 pages. It falls open to the I Have a Dream speech. And I started reading the speech like a prayer. I have a dream that one day sons of former slaves, sons of former slave owners will sit together at the table of brotherhood. And for the first time, I prayed for the family that used to own our family where this kettle pot came from. But I didn't know that God was connecting me to more unfinished business. So my friend Lou Engel said, hey, January 17, 2005, I'm doing a prayer meeting at the Lincoln Memorial. Bring your kettle. Share that dream. It'll be a powerful time. Well, we do that. And uh, we had a prayer meeting that day. If you would, put up that first slide for me of uh, that prayer meeting. This is at the Lincoln Memorial. This is MLK Celebration Day, January 17, 2005. And it's kind of cold that day, if you can tell. Right? We're out there praying for eight hours. Intercessors, gotta love them, right? <laughs> it was zero degrees that day. And uh, having a prayer meeting there, if you, you might, some of y'all might recognize my friend Lou Engel on this side over here. But then if you follow that hand with the blue sleeve out to the fingertips, you see my little face. Well, I'm not the person who took this picture. The person who took this picture was a guy named Matt. And he was led to this prayer gathering because he had a dream. His father just died, and he's trying to research his family history. Ran into all the roadblocks that other family members had because that courthouse fires where he grew up in Kentucky and in Indiana, and all their records were destroyed, so he thought. But then he had a dream. He thought it wasn't related to anything he was going to, but in it, he, he has a dream. In the dream, he's praying for revival and the ending of abortion with a man named Lou Engel. And he wakes up from his dream and he goes, who and what is a Lou Engel? <laughs> and why were those people praying so intensely in my dream? His idea of a prayer meeting was that's something that you only did on Wednesday nights. You did it for 30 minutes. You talked for 25 minutes. And then you prayed for the lady with the bad hip and asked God to help her endure affliction. Yo, not heal her, but yeah. <laughs> That was his idea of a prayer meeting at the time. And he, just, he said he had no thought or concern about the pro-life issue enough to be a voice about it. He said he voted pro-life, but he didn't take a stand for it. He was working in corporate America, and, you know, he just didn't want that kind of stuff to get out. He's on the fast track and where he was in corporate America at the time. 
But the other thing about his dream is that there was a man in his dream named Lou Engle. He didn't know who Lou Engle was. So he went to this newly invented thing called Google at the time in 2005, <laughs> 2004, and types in the name Lou Engle and up pops the face of the man that he saw in his dream, Lou Engle, and he's praying for revival and praying for a cultural life in our nation, and he freaks out. And so he thought, well, I'll just tell this guy this dream and I'll be done with this. <laughs> he's still not done, y'all. He called up a rep for Lou, and, and he says, sir, you just dreamed exactly what we're doing in Washington, D.C. Maybe you should come and be a part of what we're doing. We're doing this prayer gathering on January 17, 2005. So he decides to come to the gathering, and uh, I start sharing my story that night after the prayer meeting at the Lincoln Memorial that day. We're at Bishop Harry Jackson's church. That's where he had the conference. And I'm sharing my story, and I start saying, yeah, and this kettle comes from the Lockett side of my family. Harry Lockett, then Noah Lockett, then William Ford Sr., Jr., then me the third. I look out in the audience, and there's this white guy with his hands buried in his beard, and he's just shaking and crying. Comes up, and it's that guy, Matt. He said, hey, you know, I told my, pa- my family that if this is really God, I need to hear my name called out. And when you said this pot came from the Lockett side of your family, my 10-year-old daughter elbowed me and said, Dad, he just said our name. You told God we had to hear our name. He just said our name. I said, your name's Matt Lockett? He said, yeah, Matt Lockett. I said, oh, I never met a Lockett before. So I, I quizzed him. I thought, well, how y'all spell Lockett? <laughs> with two T's at the end or one? He said, oh, we spell it with two. I said, oh, okay. My family wants to spell it with one. So where are your Lockett's from? And I just waited. He said, oh, our Lockett's from Kentucky. I said, oh, mine are down in Louisiana. But, you know, that little coincidence was enough to connect us as friends and he's an intercessor, I'm an intercessor. We pray for our nation and we, you know, repented over the sins of the nation as, you know, doing identification, repentance. That's the first thing we did. And we became very good. He's one of my best friends, even to this day. So for 10 years, that was our friendship. But then one day, my friend Lou Engle decided to do a prayer meeting in Virginia. And he decides to go to the place where the South surrendered to the North in the Civil War. Uh, Appomattox Courthouse, McLean uh, uh, Farmhouse, where General uh, Lee surrendered to General Grant. And so they're coming out of that place, just finished praying for the nation. How many of you know there's an enemy trying to bring another civil war? <laughs> and so he's praying that spot to pray for healing of our nation. But when he comes out, he goes into the visitor center and he grabs the first book that he sees off the shelf. He grabs it and he opens it up and it falls to this page. And it says, The Last Shot, The Battle of Lockett's Farm. I got a picture of it right here. If you would, put that up for me. The next slide. This is, uh, you go to the next slide for me. This is what it says. The Battle of Lockers Farm, the last shot. It turns out that the last battle of General Lee was fought at a farmhouse of a family named Lockett's. The Northern Army was in the back. The Southern Army was in the front. The only thing that stood between the war and armies was that house. So he's like, man, what a cool coincidence. You know, so... He was talking to, you know, his team about it. But then he got a phone call from his brother. He said, hey, man, I cracked the code in our family history. I got us all the way back, you know, to 1645. And Matt says, oh, Virginia. Do I have a Virginia story for you about the lockets, about some lockets? And he starts telling them this story. And his brother says, hold up. I just got the documentation on it. That's not just any locket family. That's not like a guy named Smith. Here's about another guy named Smith in history. He said, no, that's our family. In other words, my friend Matt Lockett found out that the Civil War ended in his family's front yard. 
So just like any good red-blooded intercessor, what does he do? He goes to that place to see if it still exists. So if you would, go to the next slide. And it's still there. This is it. It's been preserved from history. It still has bullet holes in it from the Civil War. And there's a memorial stone in the front where it says, Here Lee fought his last battle, April 6, 1865. You go to the next slide real quick for me. That's Matt and his family, his wife Kim and their kids. Next slide. Um, and this is the man showing him the bullet hole still in it from the Civil War. Go to the next slide. And so the gentleman brings Matt in the house. He said, how much do you know about your family history? He said, I just had my brother's research. He pulls out his brother's research. The man shows him, the man who owns the house, shows him the family history that he had for the lockets. It fit like a hand in a glove. This is definitely his family. And then he said, what else do you know about your family? He said, oh, not much. He said, well, y'all came in here through Virginia, and you had really big families, and you owned lots and lots of slaves. And some of y'all left from here and went to Kentucky. Matt's like, okay, I know that part. <laughs> but then he said this, some of y'all left from here and went down to Louisiana. <laughs> and before you could ask him, the gentleman said, oh, yeah, sometimes as y'all traveled across the country, there were clerical errors in how you spelled your last name, and there was a T dropped off the end of your name. When Matt heard that, he remembered the first conversation he and I had 10 years earlier. He flies from D.C. to Dallas and lays out all of his family research. I brought my family research, and we just talked and prayed and cried. He flew back, and we would just text each other in the morning for months, just looking at our own research. So if you go to the next slide, this is a document from my family history. See, we were all Lockett's first in my family. My grandfather was literally born Lawrence Lockett, but his grandparents who raised him didn't want him to have a slave last name like them. So they gave him the last name Ford from one family friend and gave him the first name William from another family friend. And that's how he became William Lawrence Ford. All right. And the earliest known lockets in, in, uh, who were African-American were these folks. Uh, this is 1870 census, about as far back as I could go. But there's this gentleman, Isaac Lockett. He's 90 years old in 1870 census. He's living at you know, Lake, uh, East Carroll Parish, which is Lake Providence. But in this document, he said he was originally from Virginia. Originally from Virginia. And so we did the research. The only people who owned slaves at that time who were Lockett's was Matt's family in the Virginia area. You know, slaves always take on the last names of people who owned them, right? Or they were willed off to the family members that had to travel different places. So after a year and a half of research after that, here's what we found out from the empirical evidence that we have. It was my friend Matt Lockett's family who owned my family where the kettle pot came from. So here's my family down in Lake Providence. Why Lake Providence? Maybe the lake of God's providence is way deeper and wider than we know. Maybe our skin color. Maybe the family we're born into. Maybe it's a redemptive purpose for all of it to show forth God's glory. That they're praying for the ending of slavery, and all the way up at the farmhouse of the people used to own them, slavery comes to end in their front yard. But then, because he's the God in the past and the future, and he loves to heal history, Mr. Poema weaves two family members together, weaves two storylines together from that storyline, Matt Lockett and I, so we can war against injustice in our day and cry for awakening in our time because that's the kind of God we serve. He loves to heal history. Let me show you how crazy this story is. If you go to this next slide real quick, this is, uh, oh, I forgot this slide was in there. We found out where Isaac Lockett used to live, and this is the plot of land. 
the town of Lake Providence was dealing with race, racial problems. They wanted me to, and Matt to come in and, and bring healing. So we spoke to the city council and the school board, and, and we went to this plot of land. This is where Isaac Lockett used to be a slave. <laughs> So 1870 census, that's like maybe six, seven years after slavery. The man's 90 years old. This is probably where he was a slave. So think about it. On that plot of land, a couple of hundred years ago, there was a prayer meeting in the middle of the night where some people were taking this kettle pot into a barn to pray for my freedom and for your freedom too. If you go to the next slide for me, you'll see where Matt and I have been sharing this story around the country ever since. You go to the next slide for me. And in the, the town of Lake Providence, they actually gave us the keys to the city. Listen, God is releasing keys of providence to open doors. No man can close. No, close the door to division, racism, disunity, bitterness, hatred, anti-Semitism too. To the Jew first. Next slide for me. Let's show how crazy the story is. This is Napoleon Lockett. That's Mary Lockett. And the... Uh, they were like the gone with the wind aristocrats from back in the day, right? I mean, he, he was a colonel. He owned farms. He was an attorney. He owned 126 slaves just by himself. It's one of Matt's ancestors. Between he and his 11 children, they owned hundreds of slaves. Well, Mary Lockett, the socialite, she didn't like the fact that the Southern White House, the Confederate White House, she didn't like the fact that it didn't have its own flag. So she hired a designer. And she designed and sewed together in her house the very first ever Confederate flag. She came up with the idea for it. In other words, Matt's family became the Betsy Ross for the Confederacy. <laughs> and she hand-delivered it by horse and bucket to her friend, Jefferson Davis. And here's the flag that she came up with. It's this flag right here. It's called the Stars and Bars. But they thought, oh, it looks too much like the Union flag on the battlefield, so let's come up with a Confederate battle flag, a rebel flag, so that's this flag here that we're more familiar with. But think about it, y'all, because God heard the prayers of black Christian slaves and white Christian abolitionists all around the country, and especially in this family. Listen, through the same family where the flag of rebellion was raised up, next slide, the flag of surrender goes up in their front yard because God heard praying people. We stayed stuck there for a little while. And then, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, y'all are prayer people, right? We love to pray. Don't you love when God answers prayers and God brings that together stuff you couldn't, you couldn't realize? I'm like, hold up. One day I was like, your people used to all my people. <laughs> what about Uncle Willie? <laughs> I was surprised I had anger come up. I, I've been working in the area of reconciliation for years. I don't know if it's what I was feeling around the country or what I was feeling in my own heart, but what I do know is that I knew why God gave me the first dream. He gave me the dream of forgiveness before I ever met Matt, right? And he, I had to apply that. And so he and I talked it out. We wrestled it out because he was wrestling too. He's like, man, I've been hearing your story for 10 years. Now I'm the bad guy of it. He said before then, he was always like, I wasn't there. You wasn't there. Get, get over it. And he, God showed him how dismissive that is. And I love the way Matt says it. He says, you know, we got two groups of people in our nation right now who think they're going to win by withholding. One group wants to withhold acknowledgement of anything that happened in the past and doesn't want to repent. Another group wants to withhold forgiveness and think, oh, if we let these people off the hook, we don't know what they do next. God, and what God is saying right now is first one to love wins. That's who wins. So, but then after a year and a half, God let us be stuck there for a year and a half. Then Matt just happened to run across a book about Methodist revivalists who were circuit riders, 
and he found that one of his ancestors was a circuit rider with Francis Asbury. That's important because the circuit riders would, they would preach the gospel, but they also carried three things in their, in their satchel, Bible, hymnal, and manumission forms. The manumission forms were so that if they preached the gospel and a slave owner got saved, they would say, listen, this is for freedom that Christ set us free. Now go ahead and sign these manumission forms and legally set your slaves free too. Daniel Lockett and Matt's family was one of those. How would you like to be at that altar call? And everywhere that the circuit riders went, the free slave population grew exponentially. So it's like all of our families. We have these things called generational curses, generational blessings. They represent these dominating themes of storylines. And what God is shouting to America right now is this, y'all. What storyline do you want to be a part of? The healing or the hurt? The blessing or the curse? What storyline do you want to be a part of? Let me share with you one last story. So here's another story of healing from Matt's family. There was two slaves, former slaves, just after slavery's ended, they're working as sharecroppers on the Lockett uh, property in Virginia. And this mother's trying to teach her five-year-old boy how to read in secret because it was still frowned upon for black people to learn how to read and get educated. Because if you want to keep somebody a slave, you keep them uneducated, which is another sermon for another day, right? <laughs> so it's during that time period, but then in walks Lucy Lockett, one of Matt's ancestors, walks in on him and catches him red-handed. <laughs> And so they thought, oh, there's going to be some bad consequences for this. And Lucy Lockett said, no, 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 what you're doing is good and right, and I'm going to take over your tutoring. So she taught that mother and that five-year-old boy how to read and write. Why do I know that story? Well, the reason why I know that story is because that five-year-old boy grew up, and he became the second president of what is now Tuskegee University. Wow. He became an educational advisor to four presidents. And if you go to the next slide, when the Lincoln Memorial was dedicated, he's the man that gave the dedication speech. His name is Robert Russell Moton. 1922, he gave the dedication speech of the Lincoln Memorial when it was opened up and wrote in his autobiography how Lucy Lockett taught him how to read. And then 41 years later, Dr. King would come to those same steps and declare, I have a dream. And then 41 years later, Matt Lockett and I would meet in those same steps at the Lincoln Memorial on MLK Celebration Day at a prayer meeting. So think about it. This happened to two men who were led by dreams to meet each other at the same place. What Dr. King said is, I have a dream speech. I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves, the sons of former slave owners, will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. So maybe the dream speech wasn't poetry. Maybe it's prophecy. There was a dream king called the King of Kings. His father's still going to answer his son's prayer. Where he says, Father, I pray that they be one so that your glory could come so that the world would believe. Maybe God had forgotten about the prayers of your mama and your papa either. Maybe there's a redemptive reason why you were birthed into the family you were placed in and you haven't figured it out yet. Because all of this is happening to a guy who was born 11 years later when doctors told my mother she wasn't going to have any more kids. She thought I was a tumor. She literally thought I was a curse. And when she went to the doctor and found out she was six months pregnant with me, I felt like one big mistake for so, so, for so long. But when I surrendered my life to Christ and I gave my period to him so he could put a comma, he finished writing the rest of my story. Stand to your feet. So I talked about how 
Yeah, we had an uncle named Uncle Willie who unwillingly gave his back to be beaten. But here's the truth, another truth. Jesus Christ willingly gave his back to be beaten for us all. And by his stripes, yeah, he's healing history. And by his blood, he is uniting us into this amazing one new man. Those who have been far off, been brought near, grafted in to this amazing storyline. And God's not through with your storyline. May I ask Pastor to, to come up and I just pray, but here's the thing. Somebody pray for you. Amen. Maybe it was two weeks ago. This is a praying house. Maybe it was 200 years ago. But I know the 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ had you on his mind. So, Jesus, we're here because we overheard you praying for us. God, give us the grace to respond to your son's voice in this hour. Use the United Church to hold up out the nation. God. Let some praying mother, some praying father receive the answer to their prayers today. We call forth the destiny and the purpose that you place over all of our children. Turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the children to the fathers. Break this curse off our nation, God, of division and everything else. Break generations of curses in our families, Lord. Help us to be the ones to start a new storyline of generational blessing so that generations even yet to be created can praise you. Jesus' name. Bless you, sir. Would you give Pastor Will a great big God bless? Stay with me, Will. Stay with me. Wow. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. You know, I've been in the ministry for 45 years, 46 years, something like that. I don't think I've ever taken a service back from a guest speaker and thinking, number one, I have nothing to say. And number two, I, I have 30 new sermons out of what was just taught. I'm serious. Now, something Will doesn't know that we all know is that in ancient Hebrew, there's no word for coincidence. All right? No word for coincidence. This whole story of Will and Matt and you and I is not a coincidence. We are just weeks away from going into the Hebrew month of Adar. Adar is the time of the story of Purim. Purim is the story when it looks like it's impossible. God is working behind the scenes to turn the whole thing upside down. Come on, somebody. And, of course, we'll teach Purim. We'll teach the story of Esther. Mordecai comes to Esther and says, Esther, you've come into the kingdom for such a time as this. God's going to do it. If you don't 
let him use you he's still going to do it and it's one of the greatest stories it's one of the greatest stories in the bible that the book of Esther, as most of you know, the name of God is not even mentioned. The sages thought, we, we, we won't even put this in the Tanakh, in the Bible, because God's not mentioned. And all of a sudden they realize there's a reason why God's not mentioning. It's a two-folded story. One, God will do it. And the second thing is, God will do it through you. And during the time of Purim, we always pray, God, turn our story upside down. And here's the word that God gave me over and over as Will was speaking. God will turn your story upside down. But God wants to use you and me and us to turn this whole story in our nation and around the world upside down. We're in the kingdom for such a time as this. Somebody say amen. The biggest curse that's in the church is racism. Well, you got to go to a white church. You got to go to a black church. You got to go to a Asian church. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand, will not stand. But where there is unity, I will command where there is oneness, I will command my blessing there. I have never heard that in my spirit stronger than hearing the story of Will and Matt, their families, and what Satan meant for evil. God in this last days is turning it around for good. And we need to stand with them and do what God has called us to do and bring the unity to the kingdom of God. Amen. Would you give Will a great big hand? Thank you. Now, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna take a, a lot of time. Stay standing with me, please. I'm not gonna take a lot of time. That's one of the most amazing. I've been in this thing for 45, 46 years, and I've never felt that God is saying this is a now time. Than as Will was speaking, I literally have pages of notes that God was speaking. We need to be a people that realize this is a now time, not only in the kingdom of God, which is absolutely true, but in our country. As Will said, they're trying to divide us, and we need to put our foot down and our heart down and our spirit down and say we will not allow them to divide us, but we will unite us because we are one family and we are jointly fit together, whether we're old or young, male or female, white, brown, pink, polka dotted or pinstripe, we are made in the perfect image of God. And when we stand together, God will command, command, I command my blessing on those people. Somebody give Will a great big hand again. I, I'm, I'm amazed, I'm amazed, I, I, I'm amazed. I want to take a few moments and ask you as you leave to, to give a, a love offering. You know, most, most of the time we don't take a love offering. We just bless our guest speakers, and we'll do that no matter what. 
but I feel like we as a body of Christ and those of you who are watching by stream around the world, you be a part of this. I want to invest. I want us to, now, okay, thanks, Pastor. We'll, you, I know you'll take care of them. I want us to invest in this message. I want us to invest in this message. And I want to give you one story. And, I, and I'm thinking, I, well, as I'm sitting there, I'm thinking of this and I'm thinking, I, I can do a whole message on this. But I'm going to leave you this one story. If you put your hand to the plow and you look back at what should have been, what might have been, what could have been, you'll end up going back in that direction. But every one of us, our harvest is in front of us. And everything we should have had, we could have had, God has stored up in heaven and it is for us in the future. I'm Jewish. And when I was in Israel with our tour guide, he'd been our tour guide for 25 years. And we were talking and he said, have you been to Auschwitz? Have you been to the death camps? And I think I said, I can't go. I, I know what'll happen. I'll get upset, insult a German and I'll go to jail. <laughs> and we're driving around. If you've ever been in Israel, all these million dollar tour buses most of them are made by Mercedes-Benz. And I asked Jacob, I said, why would Israel do this? I want you to look at Israel. Israel's 70 years old. They are the center of invention in every area. The place is booming. And I said, why as Jews and Mercedes company was a big sponsor of Hitler? Why would, as Jews, you buy Mercedes buses by the thousands at a million dollars plus a piece from the Germans? Why would you do that? And you know what this Jewish man told me, this Jewish friend of mine told me? He said, Larry, if you don't let go of the past, you can never get to your future. And we as a nation must let go of all racism, of all hatred, of everything that limits us. Because I declare, when we can hear a story like Will and Matt, we're hearing it for a reason. Folks, what the devil tried to steal from us as a people, a nation, or whatever from the past, God has it multiplied for us in the future. And I declare for all of us, our best is yet to come. Can I have a great big amen? Man, Will, that was amazing. That was, that was, how heavy is this thing? Will, would you come up? You know, I'm just going to do it. I know it sounds corny, but I'm going to do it. Will, come up. And, and I need a couple of my men to come up here to help, to help us. Couple of my guys, come on, come on up here, and I want uh, some of my guys to lift this up. I need—I don't know how heavy that is. You need more help? Lift it up and put it. Will come under here. Can you guys lift that up over Will and I? Will's taller than I am. You can lift it up over me. I know. Is it too heavy? Okay. Lift your hands this way, and Father, hear our prayers. As you heard the prayers of Will's family and wrought a miracle hear our prayers do it again lord for you are the same yesterday today and forever pray will god we ask 
We come in agreement with the prayers of the forefathers, of the huts and the lockets, and all those who've gone before us, God. Back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember your covenant with our forefathers, God. Remember their prayers and their sacrifice. Oh, God, remember. Remember the prayers of William Seymour, how he searched for you in a place gave no sleep to his eyes and his head no rest under under a box crate till he found a resting place for you god do it again lord release an epic outpouring west once again god remember john wesley remember all those who come before us give us the epic outpouring that you have told us that we're going to have in this day in this time in this hour so that generations even yet to be created can praise you god jesus name and Father, we break every generational curse and we release every generational blessing and let today our prayers be echoed into eternity because our best is yet to come and all God's people shouted, Amen. Amen. Give the Lord a clap offering.